0: Now that's what I call a FULLY LOADED RETIREMENT PLAN! I'm Tom Pannery, and this is Origin Story! Who are you? Why are you like this? Like what? Like how you are! Where you are where you came from. From Now on, you do as I Okay? Hello and welcome back to Origin Story, a podcast mini-series brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm Tom Panneries, and what I'm doing over the course of these 33 episodes is taking a look at the books that I bought from the summer of 1986 until the fall of 1987, which is the first time I collected comics. This time around, I'm covering one comic, and that is going to be The Amazing Spider-Man number 294, which is part five of The Craven's Last Hunt storyline. This is the story that I've been spending a lot of time on over the last few episodes, and our issue here is the penultimate chapter. The last chapter will be in Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man number 132, and that will be covered in a couple of weeks on my August 18th episode. This issue came out on August 4th, 1987. It had a cover price of 75 cents and a cover by Mike Zeck that shows Kraven in what looks like the inside of a hunting cabin, holding a gun and looking menacing, with Spider-Man crawling the wall behind him. Just like most of the covers in this storyline, it's really good. And even though there's no specific action going on, the effort that Zek has put into Craven's face makes it worth it. Our creative team is the same we've had this entire time. JMD Mateus is the writer, Mike Zek's the penciler, Bob McCloud's the inker, Janet Jackson colored the issue, while Ian Tetral and Mike Zek colored the trade paperback. Rick Parker was your letterer, Jim Salakrip editor, and your editor in chief was. Jim Shooter Our story title is Thunder and it begins right after part four ended as Spider-Man confronts Craven in his home Craven's narration opens and he says They said my mother was insane a woman of rare breeding true nobility and a tender heart driven out of Russia by the Trotskys and Lenins. driven to America where she was overwhelmed by the poverty the filth The utter mundanity of life here, finally locked away like an animal, trapped, abused, terrified. And my father, his spirit broken, allowed it. And I, just a child, could only watch, as helpless as she was. They said my mother was insane, that she took her own life, they lied. Her life was stolen from her. Stolen by the spider. Oh, I see now. I understand in a way I never could before. This costumed adventurer called Spider Man is just that a man. And yet within him is something more, something great, something awful. The essence of the demon that brought Russia to ruin. The demon that destroyed my father, consumed my mother. The demon I have long last defeated. The images during this narration are vermin struggling in an electrified cage, and Spider-Man punching him in the face, yelling, TWO WEEKS! craven refuses to fight him he explains that he replaced him after supposedly killing him and then leads spider-man into the room where he is keeping vermin he explains that vermin has been in the news lately with the newspapers referring to him as the cannibal killer he toys with vermin throwing a flaming torch into the cage which coils him causes him to recoil spider-man retrieves it to stop this particular torture and craven continues to preen about and then gets on top of a stuffed elephant and i mean an elephant that has been preserved not a stuffed animal and roars like some sort of crazed jungle animal spider-man picks up that elephant flips it over and yells shut up craven looks at spider-man flips a switch and then vermin is released from his cage At first, Vermin doesn't know what to do, but then Kraven reminds him that Spider-Man is his enemy, and Spider-Man hurt him. This is enough to get Vermin to attack Spider-Man. The two fight while Kraven watches, though Spidey doesn't necessarily want to fight Vermin and is only defending himself. He tries to explain what all this is about, but Vermin is such an animal that he doesn't seem to care, and he fights fiercely. Verman gets the upper hand and the fight is about to kill vermin gets the upper hand in the fight and is about to kill spider-man when Craven throws a knife at him and tells him to go because he has made his point vermin yet runs out yelling free Craven helps an injured spider-man up tells him that he's free to go as well especially since he knows he's going to find vermin and promises that after that night craven will never hunt again spider-man says he'll be back and we see craven retire to the room where the coffin that we saw in part one is the coffin where he had been keeping that black spider-man suit and we get this narration my spider is gone now there is only a man a good man i think how strange that i haven't been able to see that till now no matter i do see and seeing spider-man i thank you And I bless you, if one such as Craven can give blessings. And there's one final thing I see, something I don't think I was capable of seeing until now. Every man has a spider, and perhaps I, I have been yours. I don't doubt it. But every man, every man, every woman, every nation, every age has its spider. You have been mine, what a burden, what an... ...honor. Goodbye. How calm I feel, how peaceful. As if something inside me, some knot, some tangle of fear and anger and so much more has been finally untied. All these years, fleeing Russia, suffocating in America, finding release, finding honor, in the jungle all these years, and I've never known peace or calm or that elusive thing called happiness. But I feel as if I can't can know it now, that it's nearby, just outside perhaps, hidden in the patter of the rain, the drumbeat of the thunder, peace, calm, happiness, and ending. Now. Now. They said my mother was insane. He puts a rifle in his mouth and pulls the trigger, landing in the coffin, and the final page is his blood trickling down a portrait of himself as a boy with his parents. I'm going to start at the end of the issue and work backwards. Um, this is something that in 1987 I didn't fully grasp, and I didn't fully grasp it when Craven said the very in the very first part of the story that he would be dying soon. There's this whole obsession he's had the entire storyline with the spider, and he after he essentially wins, he seems to feel that this is enough for him, and he's done everything. Why he commits suicide, I'm not sure, although perhaps this was his plan all along, kind of a seppuku type of ritual suicide, honorable suicide, although his way is quite messy. But I guess if you're going to kill yourself by your, by your own weapon and a sort of warrior's death, his using the hunting rifle is a way to go. Plus, there's a bit of madness going on here. He's clearly crossed over a line, and there is no turning back. In fact, the moment he put on that suit and pretended to be Spider-Man, that's when he had crossed that particular event horizon. The suicide scene is incredibly dramatic, and Matteis and Zek do not go for any subtlety. It's a little too perfect in a sense. Uh, If this were a narration, if this were a TV episode, it would be ripe for scenery chewing. It's implied that Craven picks up the gun, sits in the coffin, and then pulls the trigger. And you're kind of like, yeah, we get it, guys. But considering how dark and dramatic this entire storyline has been, it kind of makes sense. And honestly, it's an incredibly well-staged and well-drawn scene. So I don't mind if it's a bit over the top. Vermin? I'm not entirely sure if Vermin's the weakest part of this story. But having the next part focus on him kind of makes this feel as, as if that's going to be anticlimactic. You know, as if Craven's death at the end of this story is the climax of the story. I'm also not sure what the point of Craven's grabbing vermin was. I guess on some level, it's Craven's way of finally asserting his superiority over Spider Man. He not only beat the spider, but he reduced the man to an animal that is going to force into fighting another animal for his amusement or entertainment entertainment or just because he can in fact craven stops the fight because he's satisfied that spider-man has been forced to fight for his life against vermin who's an animal that is going to try to tear our hero apart and i wonder if deep down craven knows that he's not sending spider-man to his death or defeat by sending him after vermin at the end And then he knows Spider-Man's confronting and capturing vermin will clean up the mess he's made. I also kind of like the way he thinks that Spider-Man thinks as highly as him as he does of Spider-Man. When if you have that whole thing of he's the spider and that means that this is your greatest foe, this is your greatest obstacle to overcome, it's probably either Dr. Octopus or the Green Goblin. Other Spider-Man fans could probably debate me on that, but I would say that the those two are the two biggest villains in the same way that the Joker is Batman's Spider using this metaphor. I don't know. For a while, is Aunt May not dying from her 60,000th heart attack, but you know, there you go. Back to Vermin, I kind of know the answer to all that because I have read the last part in the past, but looking at it from just this particular story, my feeling is that I'm worried that this is gonna end up being anticlimactic. Again, the thing I keep coming back to about this storyline in every individual issue is how compact it is in terms of the time and events that are taking place, and how Mateus is using the fact that he has six issues to work with very well. Not only that, it reads incredibly well in trade, in a way that some stories from this era don't. That's because there's no real fat to trim in here. Even when Craven is preening and monologuing, it feels deliberate and serves the story well. As I said when I started this storyline, Craven wasn't a villain I was familiar with at all when I started this story. And I wondered if he was C-list and that this story was the best story ever told about him. Of course, it also happens to be his last. But I honestly, even if it's that true, this has been really well done and I can't wait for the final part. But, like I said toward the top of the episode, we actually are going to have to wait a couple of weeks for that. Next week, I have the only independent comic of this entire podcast miniseries. And it will be... Robotech: The Macross Saga, number twenty-one. But I'm not done yet, and I'll be right back after this. Justice League International, Blah ha, ha Podcast, a new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. We'll be going issue by issue in release order, tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as Martian Manhunter Batman Dr. Fate Black Canary Fire, Ice Maxwell Lord, Oberon Captain Marvel Rocket Red, Captain Atom Mr. Miracle Guy Gardner Booster Gold, Blue Edel, Nort, and many, many more. Justice League International, Blah Ha, ha Podcast, coming March 2016 as part of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? Carvel uh, ice cream. Carvel uh, ice cream. Call me a ice cream. Every day at Carvel America's last cream. my son's 10th birthday is coming up uh by the time this is released it will have already been a couple weeks ago but by the time but on the day that I'm recording this it's a week away he's having a pool party at our community pool the, the pool for the housing you know the housing development where I live. And he's asked for an ice cream cake. None of this is out of the ordinary for a kid. It wasn't out of the ordinary when I was a kid. Um, and what prompted this ramble, ramble though, was the, the cake... You heard a commercial for Carvel, one which aired all the time in the mid-1980s and early 1990s on television, especially in, on Long Island where I grew up, and it was one that my sister and I would sing all the time as well. Growing up, we had Carvel cakes for just about every birthday, and during the summer, my friends and I would ride our bikes to the store, which was in a shopping center on Main Street, to get hot fudge Sundays on Wednesday because they were two for one. What? I told you I grew up in Riverdale. Hell, if there were a Tasty Freeze around here, pretty much would be Jack and Diane. In the mid-80s, I'd say that you had four major purveyors of ice cream on Long Island. The aforementioned Tasty Freeze really wasn't anywhere, so I couldn't go full cougar melon camp. But we did have Dairy Queen, Baskin Robbins, Friendly's, and Carvel. Dairy Queen was nowhere near my hometown. I think the closest one was in Medford, which is about 30 minutes away. And Baskin Robbins was in a shopping center on Sunrise Highway in Oakdale. And I think there were, I went there all of maybe twice when I was a kid. Maybe a few times when I was in high school or college because a girl I was friends with worked there. So that left us with two ice cream options Friendlies and Carvel. And this, believe it or not, was enough because they were completely different in what they sold. Friendlies, and I had to go on a tangent quickly here because I'm pretty sure for years that the. I'm pretty sure that for years the name was actually Friendly Restaurant, and at some point they added the apostrophe S because everybody was just calling it Friendlies in the same way that everybody calls, a lot of people call the store Tiffany and company Tiffany's. Anyway, Friendly's is a sit-down restaurant that serves actual food, but also serves ice cream. And ice cream was the, you know, I had the food every once in a while. Most of my visits to Friendly's were for ice cream, and it was kind of a special thing. Not a special occasion like a birthday, but when my parents had the time or the money, we'd go. There was a few specific menu items that I would get on those occasions. One would be the basic hot fudge sundae, usually with my mint chocolate chip ice cream, which I loved. Another would be the conehead sundae. I don't know if that was what it was called, but it was basically like scoops of vanilla ice cream with the Reese's Pieces for eyes, whipped cream on like either side, kind of like for hair, and a fudge-dipped sugar cone for a head. Sometimes I would get a fribble which was fun to say, but was basically Friendly's version of a milkshake. Strawberry fribbles were really good. My dad would get a super Sunday. I remember one time my friend Tom and I timed him because we wanted to see how fast he could eat it, and I'm pretty sure he got sick as a result. Anyway, after a while, Friendly's also became the place to go after something, like after something you were doing. Like In the fifth and 6th grade, I was in select chorus, and after every concert, everyone would go there. Or sometimes your parents would get takeout ice cream from the freezers at the front of the restaurant, and maybe even a container of their hot fudge, which is really freaking good. And if you were a kid who brown bagged it to school, the next day you'd bring your lunch in the paper bag from Friendly's, and that earned you serious cool points. I'm not kidding either. It was, this was in the eighties when Friendly's ice cream wasn't available in supermarkets. So the Friendly's bag as a lunch bag was status. Just like in junior high, when, when you had to bring your gym clothes or like you were, do, we were doing like, we would do swimming in part of gym class and you were bringing your swim clothes to school. You either brought them in a gap bag or GTFO. Cause it, there just was no other alternative because Supermarket Ice Cream Supermarket Ice Cream for us was good it was it was store there was store brand or 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 maybe another brand or something but but Breyers was probably like the high end store brand that we would get unless my parents were buying like seal test ice milk which was this unholy lab creation in the 1980s that like convinced people they should eat because it would diet you or I don't know it was it was pretty repulsive Anyway, uh, back to Friendly's, because it was much better ice cream. The two flavors that I thought were the absolute bomb at Friendly's were the mint chocolate chip and golden vanilla. Although my parents usually brought chocolate vanilla strawberry home, uh, or Neapolitan if you want to be ooh-la-la fancy pants about it. Carvel, on the other hand, was soft serve. It stayed pretty much consistent over the years, even when the first wave of frozen yogurt became a fad in the late 80s and early 90s. My hometown eventually got its own TCBY. I never really went there. That stuff made a comeback recently, by the way. I don't know if you've noticed that Like frozen yogurt became a thing a few years ago. Um, Sweet Frog is probably one of the most recognizable ones. There's there's one by me. It's uh, it's still around, too. There's Bloop, I think, is another one. And But I, I pretty much avoid Sweet Frog, um, mainly because there's a really good local scoop shop near Sweet Frog and also because I don't really want to get Jesus yogurt. Anyway, Carvel... Carvel, like I said, it was soft serve, and on Wednesdays you can get a soft serve hot fudge sundae for about, I think it was like a buck eighty nine, and they were buy one get one free. So my friends and I, if we had a couple of bucks, we'd ride our bikes there, we'd get them, and then when it came to birthdays, the cake was mandatory, and it was pretty easy to get, especially by, since by then the stores didn't do character designs because there was like licensing rights issues and stuff. So you get a cake, they wrote Happy Birthday Tom on it or something, and you were good to go. And really, you weren't really paying much attention what was on the cake because you wanted a layer of vanilla, a layer of crunchies, and a layer of chocolate. And that's all you needed in life. Going to get ice cream, though, like really was a thing for years. Carvel was one of the first places that my friends and I could go on our bikes on our own, and later it would be something that... You might buy for a girl you were kind of hanging around with and you had a couple of bucks in your pocket and you happen to be downtown. It happened a couple of times with me. Rarely, barely kind of Friendlies was a special occasion thing. And we, even when I was a teenager, like my friends and I would go with my dad to the movies and then we'd go to Friendlies and sometimes like his friend Rob would be there and Rob would like tell stories and st- about stuff and like they it was just there were stupid guy stories but like when you're 12 13 years old it was like the coolest thing about like you know how he got into a fight with somebody or how uh this there was like one story about like um how he was stuck in line behind a, a bunch of people at a drive-through at McDonald's and they'd already gotten their food but they decided to just sit there and kind of be jerks about it so he honked his horn and they got out and gave him the finger and he had a pickup with a snowblade on it so he lowered the snowblade and started moving forward and they couldn't get out of that drive through fast enough you know stuff like that I, my friend tom used to call rob the road warrior but anyway <laughs> my son's ice cream cake i have a few options and it always slightly surprises me that friendlies and carvel products are available at supermarkets i mean i totally understand it from a practical business standpoint But from the nostalgic tinted glasses of my childhood, it makes them sort of not as special. Which I know sounds monumentally dumb, because it's the same product. And if I wanted to go to a scoop shop, there is one right by my house. I suppose I could bike there if I wanted to cross a highway. Which I don't really feel like doing. Plus, when you're older and you live like eight hours away from your childhood, the reality is that if you think that an experience you had as a 10-year-old is going to be exactly like and treasured by your own 10-year-old, you're probably setting yourself for some serious disappointment. And maybe you'll turn bitter... (laughs) <laughs> Although I will say that my 10-year-old's ability to get the contents of an ice cream cone everywhere but his mouth is exactly is the same as my ability when I was 10 to get the contents of an ice cream cone everywhere but my mouth. Plus ça uh, change, plus c'est la même chose, I guess. All right. Anyway, that'll do it. Uh, thank you. I'm going to go get some ice cream, actually. it's This has made me want moose tracks. Hi, Stella. Um, I'm going to uh, be back in about a couple of weeks, I think, with uh, Robotech, the Macross Saga, number 21. Until then, please go to the Facebook group, leave a message, review the show on iTunes, go to popcultureaffidavit.com, check out the show notes, or you can email me at popcultureaffidavid at gmail.com. And as always, take care and thanks for listening.